Well, this morning is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday traditionally marks the beginning of Passion Week. It uh, would be the case that you would preach out of uh, a gospel on the triumphal entry. Uh, Palm Sunday was the day that fulfilled the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, where it says that the Messiah will come into Jerusalem on a donkey to announce his uh, entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah. And so that's my intention this morning, is to look at three conversations in the Gospel of Mark that prepare our hearts for the Passion Week and prepare our hearts for the resurrection on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to read a conversation out of Mark chapter 8, then I'll, I'll just go to the next conversation, chapter 9, and then I'll go to the third conversation, then I'll come back to each one of them, each one of the sections, make some observations about it, and then we'll hopefully look at some application from each one, okay? So uh, you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whatever is, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now I want to stop here and just make an observation. Uh, there's a structure to each of these conversations, as you'll see. There's usually a question, there's a prediction, and then there's a lesson. Uh, now, in this case, it's, Question, prediction, lesson. In the next two, you'll see it's prediction, question, lesson. So just look for that as we're reading these next two, okay? Uh, now turn over to chapter 9, starting in verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What are you discussing? What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Okay, so that's the second conversation. Uh, now turn to chapter 10, 
starting in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed them were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink... You shall drink, and shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you should have picked up on some patterns in those conversations. Uh, Some of the questions that were asked, some of the responses by our uh, really bright and insightful disciples, Uh, and then some of the lessons that Jesus taught. Uh, For those of you who are in the Newhall study, you know the answer to some of those questions, but it is helpful to set a little bit of a context. Where are we in the Gospel of Mark? Do you guys remember from the last time we were together in Mark? Mark's divided into how many sections, how many acts? I'm holding up three fingers. (laughs) Three acts. Act chapter 1, chapters 1 through 8, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Mark uses a number of different things to answer that question, talking about Jesus' authority over the demons, over nature, walking on water, creating uh, more fish, more bread over, uh, over the uh, religious leaders. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. He's doing everything to demonstrate that he's the Messiah. Now we come to this section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Act chapter 2, which is really kind of the climax or the hinge point of the gospel, where Jesus' ministry has moved or is moving from Galilee, which is where it predominantly was, into Jerusalem. And the reason I say hinge point is because it's when Jesus, where Jesus' mission changes. He's now no longer out doing ministry and trying to prove to the people who he is. He's now going to answer the question, what does it mean to be the Messiah? And then the third part of the book is answering the question, how does he be, become the Messiah? He becomes the Messiah through fulfilling the predictions that we see in these conversations. Okay, so let's look at the first conversation. We, yeah, man, you guys, uh, Andrew, you guys went way long. <laughs> I mean, we're supposed to start at 920. No, I'm kidding. It's fine kidding. 
so go back to chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We'll look at the first conversation. Uh, as I said, each of these conversations includes a question, it includes a prediction, and it includes some kind of lesson or instruction. And then I'm going to try and tie a bow on it at the end with some application. Now, I, I thought it would be an interesting study. Uh, one, somebody mentioned that what the ingredients of a good conversation are good questions, and that's true. And I thought it would be interesting to do a little bit of a study through the Gospel of Mark on how many times Jesus asks a question in the Gospel of Mark. And it's about 36 times, 36 to 38 times. Jesus asks a question, and then in every single instance, he follows up with some kind of lesson based off of the question. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And then he goes on to teach them a lesson about the nature of the Messiah and who he is and what he does. Chapter 3, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And he goes on to teach a lesson about who he is and why he came. Uh, chapter 3, verse 33, who are my mothers and my brothers? And then he goes on to teach a lesson about anybody who does the will of God is my mother and my brother. So he goes on and on throughout the gospel with over 36 questions. And what I find fascinating is that the last question that Jesus asks is in chapter 15, where he says, asks the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ends the gospel by asking that question. Now, somebody asked the, somebody made a point. I don't see them here this morning. Uh, I was just going to point this out. This was an observation. Somebody asked the question last week, why didn't Jesus heal, instantly heal the blind man um, in, in Mark chapter 8? And if, if you'll notice as we go through this, these conversations, conversation 1, 2, 3, 8, 9, 10, are sandwiched, not in a literary sandwich, a Markin sandwich, but just you know, figurative speech sandwich, sandwiched between two blind men. There's the blind men in chapter 8 that Jesus partially heals, and then he asks the question in chapter 8, do you see anything? And somebody asked last week, why didn't Jesus heal him immediately? And the reason is, is because that question was not for the blind man. The question was for the disciples. Do you see anything? You see, the theme of spiritual blindness runs all through the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus asking this blind man, do you see anything? He's actually asking that question to the disciples, I think, because the disciples did not get it. And then if you look at chapter 10, verse, verse 51, again, these are just little, uh, these are little side notes. You guys didn't pay for any of this. Um, Chapter 10, verse 51, you've got Bartimaeus, who was blind. Uh, he calls out to Jesus, David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus asks him a question, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to regain my sight. Now, in a minute, we'll look at chapter 10, where Jesus asks the disciples the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want to sit on your right and on your left. So you contrast the disciples' spiritual blindness and the question Jesus asks them with Bartimaeus' blindness, physical blindness. He wants to receive his sight, but it was really the disciples who needed sight. 
Okay, so you see that? There's these, little, there's these little literary techniques in the Gospel of Mark that if you just read over them, you'll miss. Blind man, three conversations, blind man. Now, I said we were going to get into first conversation, so let's do it. Uh, Mark chapter 8, picking up in verse 27. A couple of observations here. Jesus starts by asking them, who do the people say that I am? He was getting an idea of, uh, of popular opinion. What were people saying about this Jesus, this Messiah? But then he gets really specific in verse 29. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you're the Christ. Now, if we stopped reading here in the gospel, we would be encouraged because we would think, to, we would think okay, the disciples are finally getting it. They're finally starting to figure out that Jesus is the Messiah. But unfortunately, uh, we keep reading, and it says, He warned them to tell no one, and He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And He was stating the matter plainly, meaning it wasn't using, proverb, it wasn't using parables like He was in chapter 4. And what does Peter do? Peter takes Him aside and rebukes Him. Okay, so now we're not encouraged anymore. Uh, we were encouraged because we thought, okay, Peter's getting it. Jesus now gives the prediction, predicts his death. And Peter is appalled at the idea that the Messiah would actually be rejected, would suffer, would ultimately hang on a cross. And then they were certainly not clear on this idea of him being raised again in three days. The disciples were slow learners. Let's just say that. Um, and lest we be too quick to look at a passage like this and say, man, Peter, what was he thinking? Let's just stop and be careful for a minute because I think we're slow learners. I know I'm a slow learner. Um, anybody know, anybody remember the, the 1970s running phenom Steve Prefontaine? Anybody remember that name? Steve Prefontaine. Uh, he went to the Olympics in 1972. He created what was called the runner's boom of the 1970s. Uh, he was from Eugene, Oregon. Tragically, he passed away when he was 24 in an auto accident. But he was a phenomenal runner. He set records in uh, uh, events from 2,000 to 10,000 meters. Is that right? I'm, I'm looking at you guys here for some head knobs, 2,000 to 10,000 meters. Now listen, I'm not saying you guys are slow learners. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not equating slow learner to running. I'm just using Steve Prefontaine as an illustration here. But Steve Prefontaine has a quote where he says, kids made fun of me because I was a slow learner. But then he says this, and I think it's fascinating. But running gave me confidence. Running gave me confidence. Now, I don't know about you guys. Running doesn't give me confidence. Maybe it gives you guys over here uh, confidence. When you turn 40 and the metabolism downshifts, running does not give you confidence. But here's what's interesting about that. Running gives me confidence. I couldn't help when I read that quote, think about Hebrews chapter 12, right? Hebrews 12, turn over there, Hebrews 12, 1. And there's a connection here, trust me. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, Steve Prefontaine was not a believer as far as I know. Uh, But in the same way that running gave him confidence, I think part of the issue with the disciples and part of our issue is that we don't clearly understand who Jesus is because we are encumbered by our own perception of who he is. We're encumbered by our own sin. We're encumbered by all of the things in our life that don't allow us to run the race with endurance. And how do we run the race with confidence as Christians? By looking at the cross and understanding the cross and understanding the Messiah, who he is. Turn to Acts Acts 20, uh, 20 verse 24. I just want to show you this verse as well. I think it's helpful. Acts 20, 24 says, and this is Paul at the end of his ministry writing a farewell to the church in Ephesus. He says, but I do not consider my life any account as dear to myself though, so that I may finish my course, or another word for that is race, so that I may finish my race and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, here is interesting, and I think it connects to the instruction part of of chapter 8. What does he say? He says, I do not consider my life any account as dear to myself. See, the problem with the disciples and the problem with us is that we're too concerned about our own self-preservation. We can't get out of our own way to understand the implications of the cross and the gospel and the Messiah. So it goes on, go back to chapter 8, verse 31. It says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. A couple notes there. That word must, okay? In the Greek, it's day, it's necessary, it's the idea of compulsion, See, Jesus didn't have the option of suffering. Jesus was required to suffer because he had to fulfill the scriptures, and the only way that he could provide a means of salvation for us was by suffering, by being rejected, by being killed, and by being raised again on the third day. Verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, and then here Jesus... Now it starts to teach them a lesson. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. What does that remind you of, that section? Get behind me, Satan. Where do we see that in the Gospels? Where's that? The, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And, and why, do you think, why do you think Jesus is making that Why do you think Mark's making that connection? What was Satan trying to get Jesus to do? Get him off course, right? Get him off mission. And it's why Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. See, Peter didn't understand who the Messiah was. He didn't understand what Jesus' mission was. 
And so he's trying to get Jesus off mission. Uh, Look at verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So there's a play on words here. If you want to save your life, according to Jesus, you have to be willing to lose your life. And anybody who's willing to lose their life for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And then he talks about this issue of of profit. Now remember, he's talking to fishermen. He's talking to fishermen who were former businessmen. Everything about their business was, all, was provision, but it was also profit. They'd go out, catch their fish, bring the, ki- the fish back, and they would live off of the profits. For what does a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, you want to see an example of that. Turn over to chapter 10 and look at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, Teacher, I've, I've kept all of these things since my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, this man had gained the whole world, but he was unwilling to give it up. And because he was unwilling to give it up, he forfeited his soul. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in chapter 8. And and that's, you know, as we think about this first conversation, we think about this first lesson, the, the, the distance between being in the group of people who say, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The, the distance between that group of people and the group of people who say, crucify him, is a really short distance. And that was true for the, 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 the disciples, and that's true for us today. Peter, and you see it here, he goes from confessing Christ as the Messiah And within a sentence or a couple of verses, we see him rebuke Jesus because he didn't want Jesus to do what he expected Jesus to do. So you say to yourself, okay, uh, what's the application here? What's the application? Well, the application is when Jesus asks you the question, who do you say that I am? What's our answer? Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? What's your perception of Jesus? What's your expectation of Jesus? Do you want Jesus to be a political revolutionary during COVID lockdowns? See, because the the disciples wanted 
Jesus to be a political revolutionary as well. The Messiah was the anointed one. He was the king. He was the one that was supposed to come in and conquer Rome and remove Roman occupation. Don't, don't we think this way sometimes? Don't we look at Jesus as the social justice warrior, the political revolutionary who's going to come in and, and, and everything that we watch on Fox News is going to come true because Jesus is going to come? That's not what <clears throat> discipleship is. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about dying to ourself. When it says that are you willing to pick up your cross, the idea was is that the, the vertical portion of the cross was already in the ground. It was already there waiting for you. And what a convict would do is he would carry the horizontal portion of the cross on his shoulder. And he would carry it to the vertical portion of the cross and be willing to die on the cross. Now, for the convict, he had no choice. It was his punishment. But what Jesus is saying to us today, are you willing to pick up the vertical portion of your cross, die to yourself, Luke's gospel says, die to yourself daily, understanding who Jesus is and why he came, are you willing to die to yourself, give up all of your expectations, give up all of your preferences, and follow me? See, true discipleship is... Not self-preservation. And that's how we live. We do everything we can for self-preservation. True discipleship is self-denial. And that's the lesson here from this first conversation. Jesus is saying, you have to understand who I am. And when you truly understand who I am and why I came, then you have to live for me. And if you're going to live for me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now let's look at the second conversation. Jennifer, I'm sorry. There's no funny stuff in these conversations. Uh, chapter 9, verse 30. <clears throat> A couple of notes here. Um, as I said before, chapters 1 through 8 in Galilee. Galilee was about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 30 here says that they went out, uh, began to go through Galilee. What they're doing is they're starting to work their way from Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Jerusalem, uh, back down into Galilee, and then they're going to finally make it into Jerusalem. Okay, So just to give you an idea of what's happening here. Now, keep in mind too, all of these lessons that we're learning uh, took place over the course of three years. Okay, so, so Mark does not present Jesus' life chronologically, but we know that Jesus lived and ministered with his disciples for a period of three years. So this is a long period of time that Jesus has been slowly teaching his disciples, here's who I am, here's why I came, uh, here's what's about to happen. It says, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know about it. This is this idea of the messianic secret. Jesus did not want a, an early coronation. There was an expectation that he was coming as king. That's not what he wanted. He was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered. Now, just a, a kind of a, a, a little note here on the verb tense, the Son of Man is to be delivered. It's actually a present tense verb, meaning he is being delivered currently in this moment. Now you say, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because uh, Judas does not betray him until later in the gospel. 
So you have to ask yourself, well, who's delivering him then? Who's delivering him? The disciples aren't delivering him because they haven't betrayed him. So if he is being delivered now, who's delivering him into the hands of the disciples, the hands of men? Who's the one delivering him? God, right? This was, this was preordained. This is something that God said this is going to happen. I'm going to deliver him over to the hands of men. They'll kill him. When he's been killed, he'll arise three days later. So again, we see the prediction. It says in verse 32, but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. Now, I think they were probably afraid to ask him because they saw, they witnessed what he just did to Peter. And, you know, usually when you see Jesus, the Messiah, rebuke one of your friends, you might be a little bit hesitant to ask him a question. And you would think, okay, maybe they're, maybe they're getting it. Nope, they're not getting it. They come to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? That word discussing is actually arguing. What were you arguing about on the way? So interesting. Uh, do you really think that Jesus was concerned about what they were arguing about? Stephen? He, he certainly was, but I think the bigger, the bigger question is, what was their ambition? What was their motivation? What were they motivated by? Uh, verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Can you imagine this? Jesus just rebukes Peter, foretells his death, says you have to die to yourself, stop trying to live this life of self-preservation. This is, this is a short period of time from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And here they are asking them, you know, are, having this argument, this, they're bickering about who was the greatest? It's wild. And so what does he do? He says, verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12, said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So here we have Jesus, whose eyes are fixed on the cross. All he can think about is getting to Jerusalem. He's fixed on the cross, and you've got these disciples that are concerned about status. The paradox here is incredible. Jesus fixed on the cross. The disciples worried about status. Jesus facing rejection and death, and the disciples are worried about upward movement. And then he uses an object lesson, verse 36, taking a child he set before him and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. See, children during this time did not have the, uh, let, let's just say that there was, no, there was not much child-centered parenting uh, during this time, Okay. Uh, Jesus did not have the status and significance in the family unit that we give children today. It was very much the case there to be seen and not heard. And Jesus is using a child as an object lesson to show that if you have the humility of a child, if you, if you seek after the insignificance of a child, then whoever... then. You receive a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who 
sent me. Um, greatest, greatest basketball player of all time. Pistol Pete. Oh my lands. Get this guy out of here. Get behind me, Steven. Uh, who else? Yeah, Michael Jordan. I mean, come on, let's go. Pistol Pete. Um, greatest uh, golfer of all time. Okay. Um, greatest, greatest actor. Daniel Day-Lewis. Is that the last of the Mohicans guy? Huh. Daniel Day-Lewis. All right. Uh, greatest president. Okay, I got one. It may or may not be a trap. Greatest preacher of all time. Yeah, you guys fell for it. It was a trap. It's a trap! Admiral Akbar, you just got, you got Akbar'd. The greatest preacher of all time. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay, but isn't that how we live our life? We live our life always bickering, always arguing about who's the goat. Who's the goat? And we do it in every area of our life. Who's the greatest? And you have to stop and ask yourself a question, why? What, what, is, it, what is it in our heart that's always jockeying, always posturing to figure out, not only looking out at the world and say, okay, who's the greatest in the world? But we do it in our own life. We're always posturing. We're always jockeying for position. We don't want to be last. If I ask the question, who in here wants to be last? Nobody wants to be last. We want to be first. We want to be the best. We want to be the greatest. We want to have the status. True discipleship demands service, not status. You want to be a true follower of Christ? You need to be willing to serve. And it's one of the things that I love about Grace Church. It's one of the things that, that I love about Steadfast, about Steadfast, about New Hall Bible Study, is there is such an eagerness and willingness to serve in this church. People do it joyfully. They do it sacrificially. But if we're not careful... Even in our service, we can try and find status. Even in our service, we can posture and jockey. We want to be the lowest. We want to be proud about our humility. And, and Jesus says that if you want to be first, you have to be last. So we've seen the first conversation. True discipleship demands self-denial not self-preservation. The second conversation, true discipleship demands service, not status. 
And then let's look at this third conversation. Yeah, I wrote here, I wrote a little uh, asterisk, uncrucified ambition. Uncrucified ambition. See, part of self-denial, and I don't know if this was Mark's intention, but you have to read these, you have to read these conversations and think, okay, part of self-denial means we have to crucify ungodly ambition in our life. We constantly are trying to put to death that ambition in our heart that's, that's jockeying for status. And the way we do it, the way we fight against it, is we put our heads down and we serve. Okay, conversation three, chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. It's interesting. They were amazed. Why do you think they were amazed? What were they amazed about? Yes, Jesus' determination, right? So th- they've been pushing against this thing. No, G- no, Jesus, we can't do that. That's, that's not what it means to be the Messiah. You can't die. You can't die. Like, hey, hey, hey guys, hey, who, who, who's the, who do you think is the greatest? James, John? Like, oh, yeah, hey, no, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't go to Jerusalem. We need you to be the Messiah, the king. And it just says that Jesus is... His mind is made up. It says there, in the ESV, do you guys have the ESV? I think it says that, it starts out by saying see. Does it? What does it say in the ESV? What is it? Somebody's got it. Anybody have an ESV? Everybody's, got the L, everybody's using the LSV. It starts out see. Like, like, look at this. Jesus is determined. He's going to Jerusalem whether you guys like it or not. And they become more fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. So here we have another prediction. Each prediction is a little bit nuanced. Behold, and this one is more nuanced. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. We know this. We've heard this before. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. We have not heard this before. What does that mean, hand him over to the Gentiles? Well, it means that he's going to be handed over to the Romans and he's going to suffer a Roman execution. And it also means for a Jewish man to be be taken out of the Jewish system and handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified is the ultimate form of rejection. Some commentators make the reference back to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament with with a scapegoat. There were two goats. There was a goat that was killed for the sacrifices, and then there was a goat that took the rest of the sin and was sent outside of the camp. He didn't get any part of the Jewish sacrificial system. He was outside the camp. And that's kind of the idea here with Jesus. When it says that he's going to be uh, handed over to the Gentiles, it's going to be the ultimate form of rejection. He's going to be the scapegoat that will be completely sent outside of the camp. Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Turn over to chapter 14. I just want you to see some of these. Chapter 14, verse 65. 
Some began to spit at him and blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And then right on the heels of this, which is really interesting, is Peter's denial. Verse 66, as Peter was blown below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls and the high priest came and seeing Peter warning himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. And he said, she said, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. He began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. The irony here that Peter would be the one to ultimately deny him three times. And Jesus says in chapter 8, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself. You see, self-denial in Mark chapter 8 is not talking about giving up chocolate for Lent. It's not, chocolate, it's not talking about 40 days of cleaning out your garage. There's a whole Facebook page for uh, sacrifices for Lent. 40 days of cleaning out your garage. Give up chocolate for Lent. That's not what... Jesus is talking about when he's talking about self-denial. You know what he's talking about is exactly what Peter says when he denies Jesus. I do not know this man you are talking about. See, that's self-denial. When we say it to ourselves, I do not know this man you are talking about. I'm denying every bit of my self-existence. And it's right on the heels of them mocking Jesus. Turn back to chapter 10. Where are we? What just happened? Uh, five minutes. Uh, here, here we go. Um, so the Gentiles are going to mock him. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And good old James and John, back at it again. Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. They actually corner him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Great. Great, guys, doing really good work here. Who's not here? Who's not in this narrative? James and John. Who's not there? The leader, leader of the pack. Peter. Peter's not there. Why? Because James and John are worried about status. They're jockeying and posturing. Jesus got in trouble. Well, let's just leave him out. Because there's only two spots. There's the right and the left. And there's James and John. There's not Peter. And what do they ask for? Oh, we, we, we want you to do... We want you to do for us what we ask. What do you want me to do? Uh, well, we want to sit on your right and on your left. We want your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which with I am baptized? They said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And then let's go on to the lesson. The ten get indignant because they're like, guys, come on. Go on to the lesson. He says, uh, said to them, you know that those who are recognized as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve but to be served and give his life a ransom for many. There's a famous Churchill uh, account where... Winston is with one of his servants, and Winston, uh, Winston was not talking very nice to this servant. 
kind of lashed out at the servant. So the servant lashes back out at Winston Churchill. And Winston says, how dare you talk to me that way? And the servant says, well, that's how you talk to me. And Churchill says, oh, but I am a great man. See, Winston Churchill was lording it over like a Gentile. And what Jesus is saying here is you can't act that way. You don't get to act that way. You want to be, you want to be first? You want to be great? Then be your servant. But see, our tendency in these last couple of minutes our tendency is to stand up and say, hey, look at me. And we see it all the time. And I want to be careful here because I I don't want to question motive. But let me give you an illustration of this. If I handed my phone to Daniel, Daniel, right? I said, Daniel, hey, while I'm up here preaching this morning, would you take a picture of me? Take a picture of me while I'm preaching. Um, And then I, I slid into the slid into the IG and posted, a, posted that picture. And I said, posted a picture of myself. So grateful for the opportunity to preach in Steadfast this morning. And left it there. And then I, I get on Twitter. You know, I, I heard uh, Elon Musk has got a 9% stake in Twitter. Well, he's trying to buy uh, YouTube and Facebook as well. He's going to start a new company. He's going to call it YouTwitface. So I get on Twitter, and I, I post a quote of myself from my sermon. Uh, Jesus wore the crown of condemnation. Jesus wore the crown of thorns so that I can wear the crown of glory, the crown of honor, and the crown of righteousness. And I, I tweet that out because it came out of my sermon this morning. Now, listen, I'm not saying that you can't do that with the right motives and honor the Lord. But what I am saying is, as Christians, if we're going to die to ourselves, and if we're going to serve, and if we're going to avoid jockeying for status, then... We can't stand up and say, hey, look at me. When Jesus hangs on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? True discipleship demands suffering, not self-promotion. So conversation one, true discipleship demands self-denial, not self-preservation. Conversation two, true discipleship demands service, not status. Conversation three, true discipleship demands suffering, not self-promotion. I know the I know the tendency of my own heart. I can't speak for anybody else here, but my tendency is to want to be a, king, a kingdom builder for the wrong reasons. I want to be a kingdom builder for the gospel and for Jesus' sake. 
I wasn't planning on that, so let's just wrap it up there. Uh, we've been included in three unbelievable, unbelievable conversations this morning. The question is, will we leave here different than when we came? That guy in the back said, one of the best things about a good conversation is we leave impacted. What did you say? How did you say it? Lasting impression. That's it. Uh, who do you say that Jesus is? What's your ambition? What can Jesus do for you? Those are the questions. Bonhoeffer ends this way. He says, if, on, if our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, which, which makes no costly demands, and which fails to distinguish between natural and Christian existence, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary Everyday calamity is one of the trials and tribulations of life. And that's my prayer this morning, that we wouldn't worship this week, the Passion Week, and come to Sunday next Sunday morning and think of the cross as that one-time, unrepeatable event that was just an ordinary, everyday calamity. My prayer is that we'll leave here this morning saying, how do I die to myself? How do I understand self-denial? What does it mean to be a true disciple? How do I push against uncrucified ambition? How do I not promote myself, but how do I just serve? And I'll end with this. Um, Every good sermon has three points and a poem. This is a poem titled, From Death to Life. And it's an abstract poem, moving from abstract to concrete. And that's hopefully what we did this morning. This is what it says. Ah, yes. From death to life, a flightless bird, a wordless song, a life in which you don't belong, a blossoming flower without scent or color, a loveless child without father or mother, a wolf without its den, a bird without its nest, I really, really must attest. Love never felt for a start, not ever finding your sweetheart. Broken bones and flowing tears, bloody swords and well-used spears, a dying lover, a hell-bound brother, Our Savior betrayed, his crown of thorns made, his death on that tree has made us all free. Uh, Father, prepare our hearts for the resurrection. May this next week not go by without opportunity to reflect on the cross. Teach us to deny ourselves. Teach us what it means to serve. Teach us how to suffer for you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.